Good morning, everyone, and welcome to my show, the Women and Children First podcast. I'm your host, Dr. M, and I look forward to discussing with you information regarding human health, specifically as it relates to mothers and children. My guest today is Dr. Daniel Benjamin. He is the Kaiser Arena Distinguished Professor of Pediatrics at Duke University in the Department of Infectious Diseases. He is also the Principal Investigator and Chair of the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development Pediatric Trials Network. As a Principal Investigator, he has received over $400 million in NIH funding to specifically study drugs for the safety and dosing in children with at-risk diseases, including uh, immune deficiencies and prematurity. As pediatricians, we are well aware of how important his work is because the study of drugs is often limited for dosing and understanding in children as opposed to the adult world. So we're often left extrapolating dosages to understand their use in kids. Danny's work really, really is useful in helping us understand what the dosing and safety should be, specifically for those at-risk groups. Danny completed his medical degree at the University of Virginia, and he also went on to be a resident at the University of Virginia before moving on to his days at Duke University, where he was a fellow in the Pediatric Infectious Disease Department. He also went on to the University of Chapel Hill in North Carolina, where he completed an MPH, a master's in public health, as well as a PhD in epidemiology. His educational achievements speak for themselves. He has a long list of awards and publications over the years of his career as a investigative uh, physician in the Duke University Department of Infectious Diseases. My favorite memory of Danny is our years together at the University of Virginia, where he was my senior resident, is that he was a phenomenal teacher. We spent a lot of time together, and his ability and aptitude to get across complex topics to myself as well as the students was quite impressive. He routinely won Best Teacher Award that was given to a resident by the students, which I find to be one of my favorite awards ever given to a person. What is very clear about Danny is that he is a highly intelligent, thoughtful person. What you don't know about Danny is what I know, and that he is a highly trustworthy person and somebody that I believe has the best interests of all children in this country. So when we get into COVID vaccination for children, the disease as it relates to children, and then the myriad topics around kids being in school, there is a certain level of trust that I get directly from Danny with regard to these complex topics around COVID, COVID vaccination, children returning to schools, MIS syndrome, and all the various discussions that we get into. It is really important for me as a pediatrician and as a newsletter writer and now a podcaster that the information that I provide to all listeners is vetted, trustworthy, and science-based. Danny hits all three of those marks. So without any further time wasted, here's my interview with Dr. Danny Benjamin, Professor of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at Duke University. Danny, welcome. Um, I hope I did you right with all that. The CV was 70 pages long, so I don't know how much that I can get into, but let's get <laughs> into this discussion today because I really want to talk about 
SARS-CoV-2, its impact on kids, and what your data, specifically your studies, has found regarding schools. Great. Thanks, Chris. And it's good to see you again. All right. So let's start with the basics. So it's not going to get too deep into the pathophysiology of COVID, but give me a little bit of background on what this virus is and, and, and what it's done to us. Sure. So the coronaviruses have been a part of us throughout history. The four common coronaviruses prior to the 21st century really caused common colds. We speculate that 50, 100, 200 years ago, those coronaviruses, as they came into the population, may have really caused uh, initially severe disease, uh, like this uh, SARS-CoV-2 has done. We've had pandemics uh, earlier in this century, including SARS, which is why there's SARS-CoV-2. And during that time, we did some really key work on understanding SARS and understanding some of the vaccine technology, which allowed us to get a real fast jump uh, on the vaccines. This particular um, coronavirus is really sneaky in how much asymptomatic transmission occurs. And that's what's really differentiated it from a lot of other different viruses. Most of us are familiar, our kids get sick, they get a little snotty, they infect other people. Here it's, I infect other people and then I get sick, or I infect other people and never get sick at all. And that really got us behind the eight ball during the first half of 2020. It took us a while to get our hands around that. The other um, two kind of key things around three, I would say three key things around COVID is uh, number one, um, how much different the disease is and more severe it is in older uh, folks. Um, obese folks is the second um, big uh, kind of unique thing with COVID. And then the third thing about COVID is it's a virus that goes uh, to essentially every vital organ in a way where the morbidity is different from any viral infection that I've seen certainly during my career. Yeah, and I think the other thing that I find very fascinating about this virus is that 10% of the people that are infected are causing 80 to 80 to 90% of the disease transmission, these so-called super spreaders. And over time, it'll be nice that the, hopefully the genomics get elucidated or we find a way to test for who these high-risk folks are. But yeah, I think the asymptomatic spread is probably the thing that kicks the most uh, risk for people because you have no idea that they're sick spreading this for two days before we're even aware that they're even sick or even if they do show up as being sick. So yeah, it's been, been a very big challenge for all of us. Uh, so let's get into your study. So back in the fall, uh, North, in North Carolina, you looked at over 100,000 kids, I think in 11 schools it was, and watched you know, what happened over a three-month period. So let's talk about that, because I think that's the seminal work that we needed to be followed politically, first of all, which it wasn't, and, and what we need to understand moving forward so that kids get back into schools, because I think you and I both agree, and I think many pediatricians do, that kids are suffering and they're suffering because of the things that schools are important for and they're not getting it um, because they're not going to school and virtual learning clearly showed to be a complete failure um, for many levels, including in our, my environment, we have a high population of children on support Medicaid that the, the access to Wi-Fi was just not there. Five kids, one hotspot, mom's trying to navigate all this. It wasn't happening. So we know the educational system was, was just a problem. So let's get into your study. So tell us a little bit about what you guys did and learned. Sure. So just to take us one step uh, backward to maybe the summer, 
We knew, Chris, um, from our experience in the spring, you'll remember when you and I provided medical care to patients, that in March, uh, clinicians were getting infected at a very high rate, and we were getting infected at work as a result of seeing each other and taking care of patients, and this was before we knew to mask. Right. right? And then in the month of April, the mask mandate for clinicians comes out. And so in the hospitals and in the clinic setting, we all put on the mask. And at that point, the curve, which had been skyrocketing for infections at work for healthcare providers, all of a sudden stopped. And for months at a time, whether you were at University of North Carolina or Vanderbilt or Duke or UVA, what have you, there were essentially no infections in healthcare providers as a result of providing healthcare in the healthcare environment. Now, we would often do stupid stuff at home, right? and we would get COVID at home, but we stopped transmission in the hospitals and in the clinics. Right. And so our research group said, let's do the same thing at schools. Kids are gonna be infected, teachers will eventually get infected, school bus drivers will get infected, but if we put in masks, we will stop infection transmission at school as a result of going to school. So the governor puts in the mask mandate. About half of the school districts in North Carolina open. 11 of those school districts, the ABC 11, agreed to work with us. We have been approached by a school district to get a collaborative going to partner scientists, clinicians, public health folks with school leaders and with the communities. Uh, to help prevent COVID transmission in, in schools and to really look at the science. 11 of those school districts roll into us. And every week they collected data on their kids, on their adults, how many infections came into the schools that were community acquired, and then how many infections occurred at school as a result of being in school. Now, astoundingly at that time, we figured it was going to be low. We just didn't know how low. And they right. did a great job. And the, the secondary attack rate in the North Carolina schools was less than 1%. So if you were a child who had COVID and you got on your school bus or you got into your classroom, you infected less than one out of 100 people that you came into close contact with. Those results get synthesized in October and November and then got published in, in January. That was our first publication. Yeah, so that was the one where we finally started to realize that kids can be in school safely, right? So that was the big concern that people had. I know Wisconsin had another study where they looked at uh, uh, similar numbers of, of folks over there in uh, Dr. Falk's group, and over 90 days, they had no child-to-teacher transmission, which I think was another big key factor. They had seven kids spread between each other, but not a single child-to-teacher transmission because of the mask and the teacher standing in the front of the room. So at that point, we had clear evidence that we could get back to school in a mask situation where kids are safely distanced, even between the three foot, six foot rule, which I know has been a, a point of contention back and forth over the time, you know, the, 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 the most important part of that data set was that masks worked. And I, and I have to say this, you know, <laughs> we're in clinic all year last year and we're wearing masks constantly. We had zero intra um, uh, office transmission that we're aware of. We had nobody come in, transmitted to a staff member or transmitted to another um, uh, patient and then, and then have that uh, event become an R naught of, you know, two, three, whatever it is. And the situation played out that the mask stopped everything. I mean, we didn't see RSV. We didn't see any flu. I think we had three positive flu 
tests last year, but they were probably false positives based on the fact that we didn't have anything else. So basically masks shut down almost all respiratory disease. Now, there is secondary reasons why people were staying at home, people were not exposed to others, kids weren't in school to that level. But to your point, masks made the most unbelievable difference in healthcare, right? So the, the whole political spectrum's going on, masks work, don't work, all the stuff's back and forth. You and I knew masks were tremendous. And honestly, I'm at the point now where I'm planning to wear a mask in sick clinic probably forever because the transmission of all these things stopped. I'm like, this is fascinating. So, you know, that was very clear that, that we need to continue this process in some way, shape or form. Now let's forward, fast forward. We have roughly 45 to 50% of North Carolinians over 16 years of age vaccinated with at least one or two doses, right? I think one dose is 50%, Correct. two doses like 40 something percent. Of all, those, of all those that want to be vaccinated, they have the opportunity now. There is no vaccine shortage. So teachers now hopefully are getting vaccinated. What does your thought process in this look like? You know, should we be having the kids mask anyway, or should we be saying to the kids, okay, teachers have had the opportunity to get their vaccine. If they didn't get their vaccine, that's on them. Hopefully they wear the mask regardless then, or what should the future be looking like? Or have you, have you planned to study that? And have you studied that? Yeah, so I think there's two separate conversations. One is around high school, and one is around K through eight. Okay, yeah. in the high school, um, I think, you know, reasonable people can disagree. If you want a policy that really minimizes uh, COVID-19 transmission in school, we know that the two things that work are vaccinations and masking. And if your vaccination rate is on the order of 50 or 60 percent, you're going to need to do some masking if you want to minimize COVID. And yeah. so there it's just a question of, how important is it to you as a school district or a school or a community to minimize COVID and then make your decision as to whether or not you want a mask? If you ask me what's the most effective thing to do for COVID, it's vaccinate. Right. And then if I'm not vaccinated, what do I do? Put on a mask. It's not complicated. Right. Uh, for the K through eight kids, it's a little more of a moral and ethical um, that just is a little bit different, okay? Fundamentally, education is mandatory in the state of North Carolina. So the state says to you, you must have your kids in school. And we know that of some sort. And we know that the most effective way to educate children is face-to-face. -face, and those children and those families don't have the opportunity to unilaterally protect their children from COVID or to protect their families from COVID. Um, regardless of what the school district policy is. So in high school, if I'm a family member that's worried about COVID and my 16-year-old doesn't have a mask policy at their school, well, I just get them vaccinated and I get everybody else in the family vaccinated, we're good. If, it's, if I have somebody in the K through eight environment, that's a different kettle of fish because now those children here in September and October are not gonna have access to the vaccine and really their only form of protection is masking. So there again, you know, the rate of death is really only two per 100,000. But if we're talking about 1.5 million school children in North Carolina, 
two per hundred thousand, you know, that starts to add up. And so I think that's a much different discussion for school leaders. As a research group, we don't advocate for a particular policy. We provide the science behind the policy. And, you know, if you, again, if you want to keep these kids from getting COVID, uh, we know that the masking and the mask mandate is going to work. It worked all year long. You don't need to test. You don't need to change around your ventilation. You don't need to do quarantine if you're doing mask on mask uh, exposure. All that sort of stuff. We as a research group have shown you don't need to make multi-million dollar investments. Just have the kids mask or vaccinate. Yeah. And so then, you know, moving forward, obviously, we'll have to watch and see how how the virus plays out with these with these variants would be the only kicker that could change all of this. Right. So clearly so far, we've been very blessed by the mRNA vaccines being fully functional to all the variants, including Delta, to my knowledge right now, not showing any big breakthrough. You know, as long as we don't see a massive variant switch in the in the SARS-CoV-2 virus, you know, hopefully we'll be able to move forward with with similar policies and not have to change anything. Now, the 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 study you just published or gonna have published, what was that one about? So we replicated those uh, results in the winter uh, okay. because one of the criticisms of our work was like, oh my gosh, we're in the middle of the winter surge. You know, maybe that makes a difference. Um, so there's a group of folks that just seems obsessed with keeping children out of school. I'm right. not sure why, but anytime they're faced with data around, hey, it's safe for kids to go to school, they come up with another hypothesis of why it's not safe, and they advocate for schools to close. Um, the variants uh, will, will eventually be one of those, I think, that the closed schools crowd will latch onto, and we'll get, we can get back to that in a second. Anyway, so the surge comes. And we, again, go back to the ABC 11 and we say, hey, look, will you guys record these data? And they do a fantastic job. And they show that, again, regardless of how much transmission there is in the community, contrary to what's on the CDC website, um, which, by the way, those numbers are completely made up. Um, <laughs> the, <laughs> yeah, that's, just, that's just what it is. Um, the, uh, the kids can go to school safely. And it's based on that that the North Carolina legislature in a bipartisan way, picks up the ball and makes some policy changes that really directly responds to the science. And they do so, Chris, quite frankly, in a way that no other state in the country does. And so North Carolina, between February and here we are in July, North Carolina really becomes the leader as far as the most scientifically rigorous, the most robust, the highest standards, and they do the best job nationally for children. Uh, North Carolina has really been a leader the last six months. It's been very impressive to watch, you know, the governor's office and the legislature on both sides of the aisle and THHS and, and DPI really come together and do the right thing for kids since, since about February of this year. Yeah, you know, I, I can say I, I feel blessed to be in this state because of all the things you're saying and the, and the leadership is strong on all levels in the medical community. And, and I think as a pediatrician, I've been writing about this virus for the better part of the last year in, in the newsletter that I write. And one of the things that kept coming through over this whole time was we spent so much time worrying about the virus from the perspective of transmission to adults. 
that we never looked at the downstream effects of really what the suffrage would be in the children. I know Charlotte alone, I remember reading one time that 10,000 plus children have not seen a single education uh, event, had not a single education event over the better part of the last 16 months. That's unconscionable from a societal perspective. And so having this data set really needs to be focused on Kids in school, no matter what. Now, how do we do it safely? You've answered that. Masks on and vaccinate where possible, right? So we have two major pieces. Ventilation, you know, I think ventilation would be a great idea for the schools just to get carbon monoxide levels down. So therefore, we can help with just how the brain works because there's data about that. But from the whole perspective, I think you've answered it very clearly that two things make all the difference in the world. Vaccinate who can and mask up to prevent transmission. And that's what I'm seeing in the clinic. And that's what we're planning to do as well to continue that. So, so to me, that's the, 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 the thrust of this entire argument. Having the rigorous data is the key. And I know you, you're a scientist. And, and you're going to look at this with skepticism all day long. So when you read the data, you're going to reread it. And you're going to reread it, make sure it's done right. So once it comes out and you're like, okay, this is what's happening, folks. It's not anecdotal. It's science. Then you can go to the, to the powers that be and say, guys, let's push this agenda. And that's the agenda we need to be promoting. And this is why I wanted to talk to you because getting this to the parents and then the parents can talk to more parents. So everyone understands this is what we need to be promoting in the, in the society, not just at the, at the hallowed halls of, the powers that be. So I, again, I, I appreciate all the hard work you've done. Let's take a little shift in gears now. So SARS-CoV-2 clearly has a predilection to hurt certain groups, right? What are those groups? I know in the adult world, it's four diseases, right? And, and in the kid world, you know, it tends to be falling into some diseases like that too. So who's at the most risk for a bad outcome, assuming, unfortunately, they, get, uh, they catch the virus? Sure. So far and away, number one is age. So the mortality risk in childhood is really, as mentioned, on the order of two per hundred thousand. So it puts it close to the level of influenza, um, depending on how bad the year of influenza is. Um, The adults will have, you know, two tenfold to a hundredfold higher um, mortality. Um, so we're talking, you know, two and three log difference between a, um, elderly mortality and childhood mortality. Now, for children, um, they can suffer morbidity. We'll, we'll loop back to that in a second. But after age, really, the big driver is going to be obesity. And that's, a, that's certainly something that we see in children. It's not just around, for these children, it's not just around the... Uh, mortality, but also around the morbidity. Remember that COVID really can go to any vital organ. So it can um, cause not only pulmonary disease and long-term respiratory problems, but it goes to the central nervous system, um, causing what people will call COVID fog, um, long-term loss of taste and smell. Um, About 10% of kids in a recently published study from Norway will have symptoms beyond uh, six uh, months after infection. This is unvaccinated children. Um, You'll have substantial loss in gray matter in a preliminary study of MRI findings. Um, Gray matter's like the important stuff in the brain and it doesn't come back sort of thing. So really when your child is of age to be vaccinated, you, you really want those children vaccinated, not because 
so much of the mortality risk, although that's not trivial. Uh, it's really around the long-term morbidity around the heart, around the lungs, around the brain uh, that is uh, potentially ir irreversible. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I think we could talk about that a little bit too. Let's, let's shift over into that a little bit more on the mRNA vaccines, because clearly those are the two that we've been using the most. And, you know, I know there's been some concern about myocarditis or heart inflammation post-vaccination, but what's very clear to me is that that's going to occur with the virus at a log full difference, 10, 10, 10 X more. So it's probably a genetic predisposition in those individuals that are at risk for the inflammatory response. We can't tell who they are, but the, the, the vaccine clearly can potentially turn that on, it looks, but the, it's, it seems to be self-limited, seems to go away pretty quickly. So let's talk about the vaccine in and of itself. Like, you know, clearly this technology is brand new. People are afraid. Nobody's used mRNA technology before until this. We have roughly a year plus's worth of safety data now between study and actual uh, uh, rollout. Uh, we don't have as long in the kids, but we still have a fair amount of data what, what should we be telling parents other than the obvious, you know, which is get vaccinated? Yeah, so I think there's four things, and, and you've touched, Chris, um, you've skimmed across all four. So one is there's this common misconception, as, as you note, that, you know, the technology is brand new. But um, as, as we were discussing right before we came on to the recording, as, as you and I both know, this technology was actually used years prior to COVID in some of the investigations around SARS, COVID-1 and around the Middle Eastern uh, version of coronavirus as well as um, the Ebola virus. And so we've been working with the, there's two really parts to the va vaccine itself. There's the little strip of mRNA, so there's the genetic material, which is virus specific, and then there's everything else around the technology. And the, everything else around the technology, we've actually been investigating across multiple diseases for over a decade. So all of that legwork, we had that in our back pocket when the pandemic emerges. And that's why once we got the genetic material, the companies could just flip that right into this validated technology and then push it into humans in the first in human studies in the spring of 2020. That's why the mRNA vaccines were the first to license. That's why they had such a head start. So all of that decade of work that you usually see with the virus, that got taken out of the virus development timeline. Now, the second thing that made the development of the, the vaccine super fast was the government uh, on both sides of the aisle, people made lots of mistakes from a policy perspective. But the one thing is a country that we like nailed with, with, with respect to the pandemic, we got it exactly right, what are the vaccines? Yeah. So the government deleverages all the risks for the companies. They say, okay, regardless of whether or not these vaccines work, we'll just go ahead and pay for everything. Now the companies are able financially to go in risk-free and the government says, and in exchange for that, we're gonna take out a bunch of the negotiation, which is typically time consuming about how these trials are designed. We're gonna make sure that they are exactly at the highest rigors. We're not gonna cut any courses, corners, and you're gonna do it this way because we're paying for the whole bill. And then what they did was they sequenced the trials rapidly, plus people were super motivated to get enrolled in these trials because there was lots of COVID around. 
Plus, because there was lots of COVID around, all the endpoints occurred rapidly, so the trials finished earlier than usual. Plus, because we'd already purchased all the vaccines on the front side, the 12 months that it normally takes you to properly learn how to manufacture a virus, the companies were actually able to do that in parallel to the vaccine development, which had never really occurred in our history. So everything was like loaded and ready to go. And when you look at what the government really in the United States really, really, really got right, they got the vaccines right. Now, as far as safety is concerned, about one in 100,000 doses of vaccine, something's going to go sideways. And in young males, it looks like that's going to be myocarditis. 95% of those cases are going to be gosh, I've got a little bit of chest pain and I take a little bit of Advil and in two to three days, it goes away. A couple of those uh, patients, two or 3% are actually going to get admitted to the hospital, but none of those patients are going to end up requiring ECMO or going to require vasopressors in a study that's going to be uh, released here in the next six months. So the severe myocarditis that pediatricians fear is not something that we're seeing with the vaccine. The mild myocarditis probably occurs, probably is linked to vaccine, probably is real. It's about you know, on the order of one in 100,000 uh, people. And as you mentioned, Chris, and you nail it uh, correctly, is myocarditis from getting COVID is 10 or 100 or 1,000 times more likely. And getting MISC from COVID is about a thousand times more likely than getting uh, myocarditis from the vaccine. So parents should know that when we look at the details of the data, the risk-benefit ratio is resoundingly, resoundingly on the order of getting vaccines. And the way that that I like to compare it to is, you know, if you wear your seatbelt and you're in a car accident. The seatbelt, 999 times out of 1,000, is going to benefit you. Every once in a while, you hear that story of somebody trapped in a lake and they couldn't get their seatbelt off and they, you know, somehow the seatbelt didn't malfunction or whatever. But 999 times out of 1,000, your seatbelt's going to be helpful to you. And this is the same way with the vaccine. Think about it as a seatbelt. It's not going to necessarily guarantee that you're going to live to be 100, but boy, it's super helpful. Yeah, and, and I want to touch on something you and I lived through because I think it's really important that people hear truth behind all this stuff. There's so much misinformation about there about vaccines, anti-vax movement, all this stuff. The, the, you and I lived the Rotatech era, right? Uh, actually, Rota Shield. Sorry, Rota mm-hmm. Shield was the first rotavirus uh, vaccine released, and that was in the late 90s. And the, after three or four years of surveillance, they finally realized that it was causing a disease called intussusception in a rare uh, number of children. Intussusception was this problem where the lymph nodes in the gut get swollen, they telescope in the intestines, cause a blockage, and it could be fatal. Most of the time it was not surgically removed. So it clearly became evident that this was real. So they stopped the use of that vaccine they re-engineered as a different type. Now we use that vaccine all the time with no consequences. So the system works to find real problems and the system works to stop that if it does occur. So I think that's critical for people to understand because there's too much of this. The government doesn't care. They just want to push the vaccines. They want their, their policy out there. 
we don't know what this mRNA vaccine is going to do over four years. We don't have four years of data yet, but the odds are very, 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 very high that what you're saying is dead on correct, that the virus is much worse than the vaccine. The risk of the vaccine is infinitesimally small. So we should therefore get the vaccine. We still don't have four years of data. But as you said earlier, this tech's been around for a while. It's not something that brand new that came out of nowhere. So, so the, I want- Can I push parents, back on that? Yeah, yeah can push I push back, back on that? Just, to, just push back on that a little. So I agree with all those points, but let me, let me make two things, okay? Number one is we've now had a couple hundred million doses of mRNA vaccine. Yeah. So when you compare it to the rotavirus vaccine, the rotavirus kind of the innocentception story came out, started to emerge after 5, 10, 15 million doses had been okay. administered. Okay. Yeah. We've gotten with the vaccines 100, 200, 500 million doses yeah. of vaccine globally and withstood it and that vaccine has withstood more scrutiny on a log scale than any yeah. vaccine ever produced with the exception, Chris, of polio, when we right. were determining between oral and um, uh, injectable polio vaccine. So we, we've got a very good idea about how safe the molecule is. Like the myocarditis story came out within a month or two months of people 15 to 30 years of age getting the vaccine. Why is that? because we gave it to 10 or 20 or 30 million. Right. Uh, but 15 to 30 year olds. So we saw the rare impacts right away. All right, that's number one. Number two, in the history of vaccines, one of the things I hear about from people is like, well, what about long-term effects? What about five years from now? What about 10 years from now? Maybe taking this mRNA vaccine now might impact me five or 10 or 20 years from now. Well, I have good news for you. We've developed hundreds of different vaccines that have been licensed and we've developed thousands upon thousands of vaccines that have gone through investigation and have been licensed at some type whether it's the various types of the pneumococcal vaccine or yellow fever or polio or whatever in the entire history of vaccines an adverse event to emerge longer than months after receipt of the original vaccine, right? So like a year from now, two years from now, can something from an mRNA vaccine work? It's never happened. It has never happened across thousands of different viruses. I mean, excuse me, thousands of different vaccines across hundreds and hundreds of different mandatory vaccines across 160 some odd country, across billions of people over 70, 80, 90 years of vaccine history, it's never happened. So is it possible? Yes, Chris, it's possible. I could go to Tokyo and win the 100-meter dash, but bro, that's unlikely. <laughs> I'm over that. 50 years of age, okay? Yeah. I'm yeah. over 50 years old. I'm not, I have a better chance of flying to the moon than we do of the mRNA vaccine having a consequence five years from now it could happen yeah but it's unlikely i i'm gonna i'm gonna take that i'm gonna go listen to this later and take that direct quote and put it in my next newsletter because danny that's the thing that i don't think we even even i'm was unaware of that what you just said i mean i've read a lot of stuff in my i have i had no idea that there was zero 
long-term issues occurring with all of these vaccines over a four to five year cycle. I, I, you know, again, I, I study this stuff. I'm not a vaccinologist by any stretch. I'm not a virologist. So to me, that from you is so critical for people to understand because you're at the headwaters of these issues. You're standing at the front when all this stuff's being developed and understood and studied. So the trust value for me is 100%. And now I can then pass that on to my folks that you, what you're saying is gospel. I mean, this is really important because that's the big fear that a lot of folks have is what's happening three to five years from now. But as you're pointing out very clearly, if we've given that many doses already, we're sort of past the road of shield worry, right? We, we're we're, we're, we're past when, when they found it three to four years out. We're already, we've, we superseded that risk. So now we're on to next risk. And if next risk has truly been zero, then I like that. Those are great odds. I'll take those odds all day long and let's get everybody who can get vaccinated over the age of 12 vaccinated. So I like that. And, I, and, I, and I'm really going to hammer that thing home over the next bit of time. Uh, so, so clearly in and my Chris, mind, go can ahead. I interrupt just one second? And then the thing to focus on, Chris, is we really have high confidence over 12. We don't know yet under 12. Right. We don't have the randomized trial. We don't have the, we don't have the even sure we have the right dose yet. We got to figure that out. And then we've got to send it across millions of children. But for children over 12 and for adults, we're there. Yeah. And thanks for letting me jump in again. Yeah, no, anytime. But so it's interesting because I was reading an article uh, about three, four weeks ago. Germany decided to just push the vaccine for kids over the age of 12 for all high risk individuals, which in the United States would be a huge amount because of obesity. But that being said, they chose not to. And again, for whatever reasons they did, I didn't get into the tea leaves of understanding. That makes people pause and question. So again, what you're stating is critical because the United States, we're not choosing that path. And the reason we're not choosing that path clearly to me sounds like for all the reasons you're stating, and that's what I'm going to focus on moving forward. So the other big thing for me with all this stuff is, you know, if there's a big variant switch, right? So let's say the variant starts to slip the vaccine. How fast can the, the new sequence be put into the vaccine to get a booster? Yeah, so I would, I would say uh, three things there. Number one is we get, a, we get a variant that evades the vaccines. Schools can, should stay open. Just put the mask on everybody. Okay. One. Uh, same with healthcare. Same with everything else in life. We know that that tool works. We can go back to just putting on the mask. Number two, to increase the amount of neutralizing antibodies, which is the most likely way that we're going to see variants get slippage, we can just give the additional dose. Of okay. what we have now. Of what we have now. Okay. There is some chance that there'll be escape beyond the genetic material that's in the spike protein in, uh, uh, inducing mRNA that's in the current vaccine. So kind of, if you will, the one, in one version, think of you know, your key kind of stops working in your lock because your lock gets old and it's kind of sticky and all that sort of stuff. That's solved by a booster. Some locksmith comes and changes the front lock on your door. Now you need a different key. Okay, here we can flip that in in a way that's faster than what we did in 2020. And the rate limiting step in my mind really is going to be just how fast the government allows that to proceed, which is going to largely depend on how much mortality it causes. That is technically, there's the technical question. Can we pop it into a new vaccine? That's very fast. Then we subject it to randomized trials. That takes several months. Then we subject it to manufacturing. 
now we've got another 12 month cycle before we get all of those into the population. So the rate limiting step really becomes manufacture of the new technology rather than how fast can we put the new technology into humans, if that makes, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. And I thought it would be, I would have been a little faster because in my mind I had again made up the thought process that we have the tech, we know it's safe. We just flip the sequence and you could roll it out within two months, but clearly not. So that's yes. From a scientific perspective, Chris, you're right spot on. Right. Okay. But from a supply chain standpoint globally, it becomes a real rascal because then there becomes this huge competition for the glass vials, for the needles, right. for the needles of the right size for the of manufacturing the dosages themselves and all that sort of stuff really becomes again its own new challenge so again the most likely scenario is we just need a booster if we yep. need that it's easily solved we're there if we need a whole new lock because of a change in locksmith it really is going to depend on supply chain and manufacturing which again, we learned that we had a really screwed up supply chain when this thing started. So making it de novo in the state in the states is should be priority number one for the government. It's a it's a national security issue not to have the supply chain of all these things in in country. So yeah, I, I agree with that. So let's let's look at one last thing and then let's close this out because you you've given so much tangible and useful data. So you know I'm a lifestyle guy. I I, I I've been studying medicine for the better part of the last. 30 years. And as time's gone on, I really have honed in on, we need to be spending some bandwidth on helping people understand how to have immunologic solvency. So what I call not being immune dysregulated, because immune dysregulation, I think, is the reason we're seeing so much more disease of chronic nature and even acute stuff. So, you know, obesity, diabetes, heart disease, hypertension, the four main drivers of 96% of all the deaths, right? Antecedent trigger of all that, clearly sedentary behavior, uh, a standard Americanized, pro highly processed junk food diet, mental stress, which messes with cortisol and hormones, and then chemical exposure. How do we get the message out there since the popular press and the media spends all their time on things that are not of that consequence? You know, you as an infectious disease specialist understand that the kid who has diabetes is at higher risk for infectious disease. Why? Because the immune system is not working as well because of the hyperglycemic damage. How do we get this message out there? Right, so Krista, in my eye, it's really all around the obesity. So yeah. the diabetes, um, as you know, the type that's driven by obesity, we address that by addressing obesity. The type one diabetes, um, we really have, that's a much, much smaller population, and right. it's kind of beyond our control. Um, hypertension is the same way. There's the rare child with hypertension from causes unrelated to obesity. There's not much we can do there. So really, now we're focused down into obesity. And obesity yep. is really less calories going in and more energy expenditure going out. And you can either press on one of those levers or both of those levers. And if you're gonna have maximum impact, it's about pressing on both of those levers. And here are the three key people that have to be involved. Number one, the child. Number two, the primary parent or primary caregiver. And number three, the secondary caregiver. So if you're in a house with a mom and a dad, two moms or two dads, or a mom and a grandmom, those two adults have to be aligned. They've got to be in lockstep on 
This is what our diet's going to look like. This is the kind of food that we're going to put on the table. This is what we're going to do as a family. Because I got to tell you, I've been practicing pediatric medicine for a while. And I have, not, I have yet to see a seven-year-old get in the car, drive themselves <laughs> down to the Piggly Wiggly, and buy a bag of Doritos. That yeah. ain't happening. It's right. the adults that are putting the food on the table, that are going out for the four trips a week to McDonald's, that are going out for the 13 different cupcakes that are put, they're putting on the table, that are all the processed food that's getting onto the table. The kids are not generating revenue and tapping into their um, payment plan to go down to Winn-Dixie to get all that junk food. They are not tapping into their own personal 401ks to go to cookout to get a burger with a milkshake, okay? Right. It's the parents that are driving the calories in. Now, the expenditure out, the parents facilitate that by saying, hey, I know it feels like we're expending a lot of calories when we're playing Fortnite, but we're not. And a little <laughs> bit of Fortnite, you know, that might be all right. But 12 hours of that, that's not working. And so as pediatricians and as parents and as community members, it's really those two levers. And at some point, you know, it, we're, we're going to have to pick up that ball. Yeah. And I'll tell you, I'll push back. I'll, I'll push on one other lever that I think really needs to happen. I think the state governments need to do a better job of providing good food for kids in school. I could tell you 70% of the kids that I take care of are on, on, on a system set up where they get lunch at school. And when you look at what they're feeding the children, especially in Ryan County, the quality of the nutrients going into these kids is one, not great too over calorically uh, laden. You know, and when we think about subsidized foods and all that stuff back in the 60s, 70s, there was a lot of skinny kids who weren't getting enough food on the table. Now we don't have a calorie deprivation issue. We have a calorie overload issue. And so when kids mm -hmm. are coming in the morning, they're getting a biscuit with a uh, egg and cheese um, uh, sandwich and then a muffin to side washed down with apple juice. That's a calories for the whole day. And this is, this is sanctioned by the state. So that's the other lever I think we need to push on hard. The problem is that politically is a is a ball as a ball that's not being not being passed at all. So it's a bit of a mess. But I see a lot of our kids who the parents aren't even involved in the first two meals of the day. They're only involved in the last meal of the day. And the kids by that point are already superseded their calorie need for the whole day. So that's that's a big piece of the pie we need as a public policymakers. We gotta be pushing on that lever some too. Buddy, I so appreciate your time and I think all the people that are gonna have the fortunate experience to listen to you are gonna learn a ton. You are a wealth of knowledge. You are highly respected by us, everybody that I talk to. And I'm so, so, so grateful for your time, buddy. Hey, thank you. All right, Chris. You take care, pal. Right. You too. Bye. Bye, bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed my interview with Dr. Danny Benjamin. He is a wealth of knowledge, as you can see, highly respected infectious disease physician imparting significantly useful information for us regarding COVID vaccinations back to school. As a principal investigator on the largest study in the country regarding how we get our kids back to school, it is of critical importance that we listen to the data and not make emotional decisions. I trust Danny. You know, we're residents together. I know him as a person. And I just really want to let you know that this is, is something that we should all really take seriously, whether we are talking about the vaccine for the over 12-year-old age group or whether or not to wear masks, the variant switching. All of this data is very important. 
for all of us to listen to and synthesize into our decision-making processes. For me, the take-home points from this interview are twofold. First, the most important event that must occur in the future, full stop, is that children need to be in school face-to-face, full-time, end of story. I don't think we can sanction the educational emotional nightmare that was last year's virtual learning debacle, and it was all that and more. If the kids need to mask to make this take place in school face-to-face, then so be it. The K through eight year old age, the K through eighth grade year age range may need to mask if there is a spike in COVID cases. Hopefully not, but if it has to be, it has to be. The kids need to be in school. The second big takeaway is that the mRNA vaccines are safe. Let me repeat that. The second takeaway is that the mRNA vaccines are safe. We are past the point of really having significant worry that there will be some long-term downstream effect that we don't know about. So the 12-year-old age range and up, I think we should really consider everyone getting vaccinated, not just the high risk as the Germans have decided. I think this is takeaway number two. Folks, that wraps up this second Women and Children First podcast. And I hope you enjoyed my interview with Danny Benjamin, and I hope you enjoyed this format. And the next installment in the Women and Children podcast is to start the series that I really want to get into regarding women's health specifically. And we're going to begin with Dr. Randy Jertle, a professor of epigenetics at Duke University, who is now going to give us a tour through the world of his research in 2003 to 2005 that has set the stage for incredible discovery and how we're looking at disease from a maternal and a child perspective overall. Two last things. One, the disclaimer, the information provided in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional. It is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. Folks, that wraps it up. I hope I've done a reasonable service to you by providing a resource and a avenue to gain new information to synthesize into your daily decision-making process around disease in general and this week COVID. Have a great day. Hug those kids. Till next time. I am Dr. Chris Magrita. Be well.